When Lydia Thorpe was sworn into federal parliament earlier this month, she entered the chamber with a raised fist, a show of solidarity to the families of the growing number of Indigenous Australians who have died in police custody. The gesture was as powerful as it was symbolic and marked the beginning of what is an historic appointment. A political trailblazer, grassroots activist and social justice advocate, the former Victorian state MP has made the switch to federal politics and hopes to shake things up in the process. Lydia Thorpe, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. What were your reflections on being sworn into Parliament? How did that feel? Well, you know, there was a lot of hype leading up to it and I was, you know, a little bit nervous the day before, but I must say that being welcomed by traditional owners and, you know, going through a a ceremony down at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy just empowered me and and gave me strength to continue to walk up to Parliament House and, and start my job. It was just the energy that I needed at that particular time. It um, always been part of my protocol is to yarn with the elders and people of that land and that's exactly what I did and you know by being granted permission to work on their country and know that they're available when I'm in Canberra that just reassured me and made me more confident to walk in there knowing I had the backing of my people. You grew up really strongly in your culture and you grew up in a housing commission in Melbourne. How did this upbringing help shape your worldview? Uh, Well, it makes you tough. You know, our people have been through so much in the last 240 years. Our old people, our ancestors fought and died for us to be here today and I see that as no different and and that we as Aboriginal people have a responsibility to continue their legacy of continuing to care for and protect country but also care for and protect one another on this journey and so there's certainly been hard times, tough times and times where you know I just felt like that it was all too consuming but Throughout that whole time, my fight for my people had had never stopped at any time, regardless of my personal situations. And I think that's what gets me up each and every day and and growing up in public housing, part of a community, not just, you know, an Aboriginal community, but quite a, a multicultural community where a lot of those people had the same values as we did. And that was to look after one another and make sure that we were safe when we were hanging out at the basketball court down at the bottom of the flats. And yeah, so that just gave me that grounding, I suppose. And and that is that we have to look after our most vulnerable people because I know what it's like to struggle. And I know that too many people out there in this country are facing that same struggle every single day. Federal politics, why now? And as somebody who's been staunchly an advocate for change, often outside the system, you're in the system now. Why did you choose this path? I think the path chose me. It's not something that I, you know, set out to do. It wasn't a career choice. I don't think I ever really had a career choice. I just went with what came up next as long as it was positions where I could make a difference to our people's lives. 
So, yeah, being in the Senate, I'm still coming to terms with it, to be honest, but to be able to elevate grassroots black voices in that place is something that I don't think has been represented yet. And I'll continue to fight for our people. You know, there's a lot of unfinished business. We've got too many deaths of our people and too much destruction of our country. And I think that, you know, all Australians, if once they know the truth, will get on board. And I'm, you know, I want to be part of that truth-telling to try and get the rest of this country to stamp out these continued injustices and, and human rights violations against this country's first people. You've been a long advocate for reform in the criminal justice system. Black deaths in custody has been something that you've always campaigned on. And this year's put a spotlight on that issue more broadly with the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's really galvanised the broader Australian public. How do you see the momentum that's come this year with the Black Lives Matter movement being maintained? And Why is it so important? Well, I think, you know, Australians were shocked at the treatment of George Floyd and and those horrific scenes of of that police officer kneeling on his neck to the point where he couldn't breathe and as a result died. You know, that really shocked a lot of people in this country. And for this country to then be told, uh, actually, this happens here quite regularly and we've we even had a royal commission about this and they haven't implemented all of those recommendations from that royal commission so it's i think it's been a rude awakening that the mirror has been put back on ourselves and what we're doing with our first people here in our own country and uh, i think that movement has only grown And it will continue to grow and we will continue to fight to have those recommendations implemented. I feel that, you know, the government thinks that it's done its job and wiped their hands, but the numbers are growing. With 441 deaths in custody to date, I think is just outrageous given, you know, we are only 3% of this population and people are dying from the most ridiculous reasons or or, stealing a chocolate bar or stealing a car or unpaid fines. That should not be a death sentence. So why is it a death sentence for our people? Juvenile justice reform has also been a priority for you in that area. What do you see as the successes and failures of the way the justice system currently deals with our young people? Well, we need justice reinvestment. We need to move away from building new prisons and and locking people up where it costs the taxpayers far more than a preventative program that would work in their own communities. And that's where communities need to be empowered and be given the resources to run these preventative programs based around culture, based around connection so that our young people are growing up strong and strong about their identity. But when we have our children being taken away at the rate that they are, more so now than the stolen generation, these children, you know, as I said, one child that I know of was, is locked up for stealing a chocolate bar. And if that's what we're doing to our young people, then we need to really look at ourselves as a country and review and, and repeal a lot of these, I think, racist laws that 
will continue to lock our people up. We need to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14, which is in line with other countries around the world. If we did that today, we would see 600 children released from prison tomorrow. So the simple steps that we could take as a country that will ultimately save taxpayers millions of dollars. The federal budget has allocated funds to facilitate an expansion of the controversial cashless welfare card. You've been strongly opposed to this welfare strategy. For those who are unaware, what are your criticisms? Oh, I think that's against our human rights. I mean, we should be able to self-determine what we want and people need to decide what they want to do with their own money. I've seen a lot of racism being thrown around as part of this debate. But, you know, why are we always the guinea pigs for things like the CDEP, the Commonwealth Development Employment Program, and now the cashless welfare card? Why is it that Aboriginal people become the guinea pigs for these disgusting, I think, racist laws that only discriminate one group of people, and that's our people. I know of stories of families that have been waiting outside shops because their car didn't work or they'd exhausted the amount on a certain product and kids are lining up hungry. You know, there's a lot of stories out there like that. No one should have to decide how we spend our own money. We need to have these programs in place that are self-determined by the people in those communities that build the capacity of our people. You've been a strong advocate for a treaty. Are you comfortable with the states taking leadership on this issue? And how would you like to see greater involvement on a federal level? Look, I must, you know, congratulate the states and the territories for having a conversation on treaty. However, I find it disappointing that whilst we're talking about treaty in these states and territories, you know, if we look at the NT, they're having a conversation there, but they're also lifting the moratorium on fracking. So that ultimately displaces Aboriginal people from their lands, it destroys country and all of the other added effects that it has on on the people, including incarceration. So displacement should not happen while we're talking about negotiating an agreement and a way forward. And, And if we look at Victoria, they're selling off Crown land, they're logging country, they're denying cultural heritage protection, and our incarceration rate, particularly for Aboriginal women in Victoria, has skyrocketed over 300%. So I just can't understand how you could want to be friends and negotiate a way forward when you're still implementing oppressive laws that discriminate against our people. And finally, sorry, just Queensland. You know, when they extinguish native title of the Wangajungaloo people, to build the Adani coal mine and still want to sit down and talk about a treaty and a, and a way forward. Well, it's pretty hard when you've got people fighting for their life and fighting for their country and then wanting to sit down and be all happy to talk treaty. So I think that's a real issue that the states and territories need to look at and show some good faith and then get people at the table that aren't struggling with their basic survival or, or their basic survival of their land or water 
And in terms of a federal or a national approach, well, I think, you know, we've got so many different clans and nations around this country. They need to be acknowledged in their own right. They all need to self-determine whether they want to be a part of this or not. But we also need to uh, educate the wider community, the Australian population, on what treaty is and what it can look like because a treaty with Aboriginal people in this country will benefit the rest of this nation. It's about, you know, our identity as a nation. It's about us coming together and being able to celebrate together. We're so divided here in Australia that I believe that treaty is a mechanism to bring people together and negotiate a way forward. Obviously, it's a strategy within the Uluru Statement and there's a view that it needs to be a voice, treaty and truth in that order. That's one view. What is your view about that? Well, I think that we need truth-telling first and foremost. From my experience and from what I'm hearing on the ground is people don't even know the history of this country. So truth-telling is imperative for the rest of this population to come along on a journey. I think treaty needs to come after that. So once everyone understands the invasion and what that did to our people and how our people and land were decimated as a result of that, I think we then talk about, okay, this is our our way forward for healing. What's important to you or for you to be able to move forward? And that's a treaty negotiation. And then if constitutional recognition or a voice to parliament is something that people want as a result of those treaty negotiations and conversations, then absolutely that should be in there. But the statement is saying, let's jump into the constitution before we talk about treaty. And I just believe that that's around the wrong way. The voice to parliament has not reached all clans and nations around this country. There were a number of or hundreds of, if not thousands of Aboriginal people that did not get invited to that meeting at Uluru. So we need to go back to the people and ask what their priority is. And until such time, it can't be anybody else dictating what the people want the most. And I just want to see genuine conversation and consultation with the people on the ground because they're the ones that this will ultimately affect. Senator Lydia Thorpe, thank you so much for giving me some time on speaking out this evening and sharing your thoughts and showing us what a difference you're going to make at the federal level. We wish you all the best in your new role. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Lydia Thorpe is a Green Senator for Victoria.